You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet. It's been a busy National Security Law Week, and we will get to the news right after we have a chance to talk to one of our favorite friends of the cast, former Judge Jamie Baker. Mr. Baker, James Baker. We're going to refer to him as James intermittently, depending upon how he is during the cast, is the former chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Services. Judge Baker is with the Maxwell School for Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse. He also teaches at the law school. He moved up there right as the climate was warming. We did that for his convenience, apparently. And we're always happy to have him. Most importantly for this cast, he is the former chair of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're glad to have him. Hello. It's good to have you back as always. Great to be here. And please call me Jamie, which is how I'm known. I am a recidivist on this podcast. <laughs> so I'd like to say two things before you start asking your questions. First, I think this is such an important podcast at this time as at all times. Those of us who have served on the committee and serve in the national security legal community are so passionate about what we do, but we need a platform where we can be dispassionate in our analysis and discussion of these issues, accounting for the three purposes of national security law, which are the authority to act and the boundaries of action, essential process, and values. Point two is national security actors always think that their generation faces the greatest number of challenges, the most complex challenges of any time. And I used to say, tell that to the Civil War generation, the World War II generation, or the Revolutionary War generation. In my 40 years in national security service, I have not seen a more complex time than now in terms of the scope and complexity of the challenges. So over to you for the questions. Thank you. It is a challenging time, and some people have characterized it in a global topographical shift. And we have hit on that theme in an effort to sort of highlight this complexity. And it's it's always good to have somebody on who actually understands that it is complex, but people can rise to the challenge and hopefully they will learn something. I want to jump right into it. We're watching what is unfolding in Gaza and many people who were initially appalled by the actions of Hamas are now raising concerns about whether Israel's actions are within the law of armed conflict. And I know this is perfectly in your lane at Bailiwick. But the reasons for this that I have heard seem obvious, and they include two major features. First, it's the numbers of individuals reported dead in Gaza. And the second, most recently, is IDF's entry. IDF, listeners, is the Israeli Defense forces staffed largely through mandatory conscription, which is a feature of Israeli life and citizenship. But IDF entered into a hospital, and this has raised a lot of concern about whether this is okay, whether there's some legal framework for this. I want to talk about the law of armed conflict. Let's do the acronyms, and you can explain what they are. L-O-A-C, I-A-C, and N-I-A-C. What are these frameworks and what applies here? I'd like to just step back for one moment and remind your listeners that we're really talking about three narratives here. One narrative is the right of Israel to defend itself, 
There can be no question about that. And we are reminded by Judge Barak in his ICJ opinion that one Hamas official has said, we will repeat October 7 again and again until Israel is annihilated. The next narrative is the right of the Palestinian people to realize their political rights and live in peaceful coexistence with Israel. As is well known, to this end, the United States has supported the creation of a Palestinian state. Some nations have already recognized a Palestinian state. The third narrative is, of course, the narrative of a terrorist organization, Hamas, which the United States has designated a terrorist organization since 1997, which seeks to disrupt the first two narratives with despicable acts of violence. And they literally are placing the Palestinian people between them and Israel by hiding underground and using civilians in violation of the law of armed conflict as shields. But in response to your question, what are we dealing with here? There are a couple of terms that ought to be designated. So you referred to LOAC, which is the law of armed conflict. Uh, the United States tend to use LOAC as its primary term. It used to be the law of war. Then we switched to the law of armed conflict. The international community tends to use international humanitarian law, which you can substitute or insert for the law of armed conflict as well. That's the body of law that applies to conflict. So the question is, when does this body of law apply? You have to have a conflict. International law in U.S. law incorporating international law generally identifies two types of conflict. One is an international armed conflict, which is an IAC, IAC, and one is a non-international armed conflict, which is a NIAC, NIAC. I am not going to spend a lot of time telling folks about the distinctions between the two, because there is some very good scholarship out there and accessible scholarship out there by people like Mike Schmidt and Ken Watkin that I would hope your audience would refer to. And there are some scholars in the ICRC, of course, has to be consulted as well, who will fill in different perspectives. And I would encourage people to look at a range of perspectives here. But the basic rule is that to have an international armed conflict, IAC, uh, you need a conflict to start with, which is ongoing armed hostilities, and you need two states. And the question in the context of Israel's war against Hamas is, one, Hamas is an armed group, a terrorist group. It's not a state. But the one question is, is Palestine a state? And by designating the conflict as one of IAC, there is a tendency, there's a desire perhaps to leverage a recognition of Palestine as a state, which, as I said earlier, some states have done so. The United States has not done so, although it's called for a Palestinian state. And Israel does not recognize Palestine as a state. And nor would I accept that Israel is in conflict with Palestine. Israel is seeking to defend itself against a terrorist organization, not a state. Point two, which Ken Watkin raises, is what is the possibility that there's a third state involved, which would be Iran? 
and which might make it an international armed conflict. There you would look to see the extent to which Iran is in fact directing and engaged in the conflict through or with Hamas, as opposed to supplying Hamas with arms or information. Um, and here we recognize that international law is reciprocal. So we would ask ourselves, how would that look in the context of providing arms to Ukraine or arms to Israel ourselves? So I would not take that position myself. This looks like a non-international armed conflict between Israel, a state, and a terrorist organization, Hamas, which does not, in my view, represent the Palestinian people or a state of Palestine. So then what law applies? So we have two sort of bodies of law that people refer to when we're talking about armed conflict. One is the law that applies to the resort to force, and one is the law that applies to the means and methods you use when you're engaged in conflict. For the Latin speakers out there, we have the use ad bellum, which is the law governing the resort to force. When can a state engage in the use of force? For example, self-defense. And the use in bello, which is the law that applies to the manner in which we conduct warfare, the means and methods of warfare. Okay. And let me just add to your point about a potential third nation, at least U.S. press accounts today suggest that Israel has sent out some guidance to some of its proxies. And at this point, although it created essentially, you know, Hezbollah, it does have a relationship with Hamas quite clearly. One has to wonder if that includes Hamas, like if, if there wasn't some conversation about this, to your point. I think you inadvertently said Israel rather than Iran. Oh, yes, please. I would not. <laughs> Big difference. Yeah. Hamas is arguably, or perhaps not arguably, a proxy of Iran. And there is ample indication that Iran has supported Hamas. And the question is, to what extent and how directly in the context of the current armed conflict? Right. Or is it an enemy of, of my enemy type of situation? So, and let's just say very briefly, by way of explanation, Houthis are also a proxy, arguably. Lebanese I, Hezbollah. I don't think arguably is in Okay. <laughs> okay. Houthis, Lebanese Hezbollah, just so that our listeners get a sense of, of what we're referring to. But thank you for explaining those acronyms. You didn't hit on one thing that I think comes up in some of the writing. And I think I, I, I got some of this in the, the West Point blog that I occasionally read, but there's a Department of Defense Law of War manual. And there is also a UN charter that has several articles, obviously 51 forward, 51 at SEC. My question is, how do those two things play into decisions that are made right now? That gets back to our reference to the use ad bellum, the law about the resort to force, which is where we might talk about the charter and Article 51 and the inherent right of self-defense, uh, which is Israel is exercising. And then the Usenbello, which is the law applicable to the conduct of military operations. And as the DOD law of war manual states, they're related, but they're two separate bodies of law. Generally, they are applied in a disaggregate manner, which is to say the fact that you have a lawful basis to resort to force does not 
make the force you use lawful. You may have a lawful basis to use force and use force unlawfully, or the manner in which you use force may be unlawful. And likewise, you may have an unlawful basis to resort to force, but otherwise adhere to the law that applies to the means and methods of warfare, although one tends not to see that particular pattern. I think one thing that's important to sort of focus on here is the law of armed conflict, the law of war principles of targeting. And I think that's where a lot of the tension comes in and a lot of the concern. So if you look at Judge Barack's separate opinion in the recent provisional measures case of the ICJ, and remember Judge Barack is a Holocaust survivor, and he recounts very movingly in a separate opinion his survival in Lithuania during the war. And I think I would commend and encourage your audience to read his 10-page separate opinion. But he notes that the issue in Israel's war against Hamas is not genocide, but rather application of international humanitarian law, and in particular, the principle of proportionality. The principles of targeting that are described and elucidated in the DOD Law of War Manual are distinction, which is distinguishing between civilians and combatants, which is hard to do when you're fighting a terrorist organization that is purposely using civilians as human shields and hiding amongst them. Necessity, military objective. So those are related, but there has to be a military reason, military necessity for striking a target. And the tough one in this context is proportionality. The DOD Law of War Manual describes proportionality as the principle that the launching of an attack which may be expected to cause incidental loss of civilian life, injury to civilians, damage to civilian objects, or a combination thereof cannot be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. The civilian consequences, the incidental civilian consequence of an attack cannot be excessive in relation to the military advantage to be gained from the attack. A couple of points are should be made here. One, this is a decision that in U.S. doctrine, in U.S. practice, and generally, it's the commander's decision at the time of the attack. It's not an assessment that's made six months later. It is the commander that makes that assessment or is expected to make that assessment at the time of the attack or the targeting. Proportionality is not a mathematical test. It is a balancing. It's a consideration of the military advantage, both specifically in that moment, but in terms of how it fits into the overall military campaign as well. There is nothing, of course, that requires you to do something that's lawful that is otherwise unwise. So there's no rule that says you must strike a target if it's lawful. You, The commander can always make the decision that humanity, military objectives warrant a less aggressive attack in the interest of preserving civilian life, even if the target might be lawful. And then a final point, which I think makes it hard or harder for us to assess proportionality from afar, notwithstanding the tragic and staggering number of civilian casualties 
is that it's hard to assess a specific decision without knowing the information that the commander has at hand with respect to, for example, whether Hamas is using a particular facility or location for military or terrorist actions, but combatant actions, and whether there are hostages perhaps uh, involved, hidden, located. This is something we would not necessarily know and I would not expect us to know when we assess whether an event has occurred and whether it meets the test of proportionality. That said, the U.S. takes very seriously its obligations under the law of armed conflict. And the Secretary of Defense issued in December, which I think has gone largely unnoticed and unreported, a policy memorandum emphasizing the importance of mitigating civilian casualties in warfare. And I think if I were advising the government of Israel and the IDF, I would make more of a point of articulating uh, why certain targets are being struck and the basis for doing so. By this, I think you're obliquely um, referring to the hospital and maybe a couple of other targets that I think look without more information to be uh, maybe not the best places to target. You're encouraging me and guiding me back to the to hospitals. I think there are many points that one can make about hospitals, but I think three things to say here. One, using a protected medical facility as a place to conduct terrorism or military operations is a, a war crime. You're using a civilian object as a shield, in essence. Uh, you're putting civilians at risk. Two, under certain conditions, when you use a civilian object for military purposes, if you're Hamas or if you're the U.S. or anybody else, that object can become lawfully subject to attack. But again, that depends on the proportionality analysis, and the proportionality analysis will be affected by the fact that the facility is a hospital, there's civilians in it, and civilians under medical care. Um, but it does not uh, immunize the place as a military target because we would not want that. Otherwise, every hospital would be used as a military facility, and the law would, would then be turned on itself. Two more points. One, that said, it doesn't mean you should attack it. The commander should account for perceptions, for the, the notion that you should still take care, you have a duty to take care of civilians. So you have to weigh whether it is worth it, notwithstanding whether it's lawful or not. I mean, if it's lawful, you still have to weigh whether it's prudent and wise. And then finally, I, I have seen one video, I cannot say whether it's accurate or not, um, or validate it. But there is concern that if a force is using civilian attire, the law is, is vague and unclear on exactly when you can and cannot wear civilian attire. Can I pause you so that we're clear about what you're talking about? And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're talking about the allegations that I'm not aware, I don't have any information to the contrary, but that Israeli defense forces dressed as medical professionals. Is that um, what you're referring to in referring, the hospital? That's correct. I've I've seen one video. Again, I'm not here to validate it. Our job is to say what the law is, and our audience can then assess how the law applies to the facts. And I would make sure that people are dealing with facts, validated facts, and not other 
material, but the DOD law of war manual, uh, there's a section that describes the difference between perfidy and ruse. And a ruse is a lawful way of fooling your opponent, and perfidy is an unlawful way of taking unfair advantage of your opponent. The classic examples are use of a flag of surrender and then attacking, and uh, feigning that you're wounded and, and then attacking. And the DOD Law of War Manual also states that it's perfidious to dress as a civilian in the attack. So the, the issue is, at what point do you change from disguise, moving into a position of attack, to attack? And the DOD Law of War Manual would seem to indicate that it is the U.S. view that if you're dressed as a civilian and being dressed as a doctor would fall into that category, attacking in that mode might well be viewed as perfidious. And, and why should we care? Because we wish to protect civilians and we wish to protect doctors. And we don't want every person wearing a white coat to then be perceived as a potential combatant and treated as a combatant rather than a protected civilian, in this case, a doctor. So to be clear, the law is unclear as to wearing civilian attire as is in essence camouflage, but the law does not appear to be unclear as to whether you can engage in an attack while doing so. The DOD law of war manuals seem to indicate that that would be viewed as perfidious. In any event, it's problematic because it encourages civilians to be perceived as potential combatants. And in particular, medical professionals who we should as a global, not just a U.S. public policy, but as a global policy, we should seek to keep them out of any conflict. Without question. And the doctors that are in Gaza are, to say the least, are heroic, essential and as I sit here trying to talk to you, I'm speechless as to describe their courage in trying to take care of wounded civilians who are innocent victims to the war that Hamas started. Yes. And just before we get off this topic, for those of you who have listened to this once and it's not all been absorbed, let me just break down one thing you said, and I, I welcome correction from you at any time. But the point about proportionality that I think is wouldn't we read press accounts of numbers on each side? We want to do it like this. It's like we're mad just, you know, like a scale on one side. It's really heavy. There are all these casualties. But what you're saying is proportionality relates to the military goals. Was this as much as you needed to do to achieve your military goals? And correct me if I'm wrong. The military goal, at least articulated publicly by Israel, has been to degrade Hamas's capacity, not further specified. Well, this gets complicated because there can be conflation between the law that applies to resorting to force and the law that applies to the means and methods used once you've been engaged in force. And necessity and proportionality are components of both, but they're applied in different ways. And when you are, so let's take resort to force, necessity and proportionality, if I engage in a border incursion, the offending party crosses our border and engage in a hit and run attack and then goes back across the border, um, that uh, it would not be, it might, it would not be necessary and proportional to engage in a invasion of the country and occupy the capital. 
most lawyers would say that was not as as a resort to force that was not necessary and proportional to the act that precipitated the event as a distinct matter when we are applying the law applicable to the means and methods of warfare when you're determining whether to target a specific target a sniper in a church steeple or a enemy position in a village or in a house, you're applying a different test of proportionality, which is the one I cited earlier from the Law of War Manual, which says that the injury to civilians and civilian objects or a combination thereof should not be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. But it's not the military advantage of degrading Hamas generally, it's the military advantage of striking the target that you're determining whether you will strike the building before you, the sniper in the building. And and this is complicated, let's be clear, by the fact that senior Hamas leadership dictates what happens within the territories in Gaza, but they don't live there. They live in lovely gated homes in places like Jordan and other Middle Eastern countries, and they dictate a lot of what occurs in Gaza from afar and from a place of privilege and protection. So I think we should probably say this. Now, my last question to you on this topic, because it's heavy, and we try not to always be heavy on this podcast, but because you're now at the Maxwell School, and this is not just a law question, I just wanted to talk to you for a second about sort of how things look in the rearview mirror. Let's assume that Israel can find legal justification somewhere for the decisions that they've made in this war. But one of the things you just mentioned really caught my ear, and that was sort of the commander decision about I'm going to simplify what you said, but it's sort of the long term. What are the secondary and tertiary consequences of this that may last a long time? So let me offer an example. Many people remember that John Yu and and Bruce Bybee wrote a memo when the two were in the Office of Legal Counsel. It was called the torture memo, but the point, I think, was that it did not age well in terms of providing a legal justification for some of the activities that occurred in Guantanamo and elsewhere. Now, in looking back on that now, it looks like, honestly, I mean, I've heard it characterized as two highly intellectual sort of egghead people figured out how this could be okay. And they wrote something and on just a humanitarian level and a karmic level, it was a horrible choice. But right now, I wonder as you look at this conflict and based on sort of what you've seen, and I know you're a bit of a student of history on this as well, What are some of the things that an Israeli commander or a legal advisor to an Israeli commander should be thinking about way beyond whether we can find some international tome regarding conflict that might provide a justification? I would make a couple of points here. One, one of the things the commander, and by the commander, I mean both the immediate commander, but also those who are directing the overall effort, should never lose sight of the fact that the goal is to accomplish the military mission, to win the war as one has defined it, not necessarily, you can lose the war even if you win the battle is another way of saying it. And one should not lose sight of the fact that while a target or a collective version of targets might be lawful, 
if you are losing your support in the manner in which your targeting decisions are perceived, you run the risk or you might jeopardize the overall objective of your military campaign. And one should not lose sight of that. One should also not lose sight of the next steps, right? In theory, by golly, we hope in practice, there'll be a peaceful resolution ultimately for the Palestinian people and the people of Israel, which does not involve Hamas. And one should take care in the manner in which they conduct warfare to preserve the opportunity to have a peaceful resolution at the end of the conflict. It's important to stress the concern about civilian suffering. And I would like your audience, I'd like to draw your attention of your audience to a memorandum President Biden issued on February 8th, which I think has also been overlooked. And it's characterized as National Security Memorandum on Safeguards and Accountability with respect to transferred defense articles and defense services. And in this memorandum, it states that prior to the Departments of State or Defense providing defense articles to recipient countries, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, the Secretary of State shall obtain credible and reliable written assurances from a representative of the recipient country, as the Secretary deems appropriate, that the recipient country will use any such defense articles in accordance with international humanitarian law and as applicable other international law. So this is the U.S. government expressing what appears to be concern, and one should realize that we should always be concerned, and hopefully we are always doing this, but this is a admonition that the secretary has to validate that whoever is receiving defense articles from the United States is going to comply and is complying with international humanitarian law. The memo also states that the secretary shall obtain credible and reliable written assurances that this recipient country will facilitate and not arbitrarily deny, restrict, or otherwise impede directly or indirectly the transport or, deliver, or delivery of United States humanitarian assistance and United States government-supported international efforts to provide humanitarian assistance. This memo does not directly mention a specific recipient, but it certainly is addressed to concerns about civilian casualties in the war between Israel and Hamas, a war in which Israel has every right to defend itself under the law that applies to the resort to force and every right to try and rescue its hostages and continue to defend itself. It does. And tragically, though, today we have heard reports that an escape valve available to a lot of Palestinians through Egypt is possibly being closed. I fear that this tragedy is going to unfold before our eyes in the coming weeks. And I would hope that the press accounting that says that the CIA and the Mossad have tried to revive the hostage deal and that the Egyptian and Qatari government officials are also involved in that. I hope that that's fruitful. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association 
and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.